All right, please turn with me to Psalm 22. That's where we're going to be looking tonight. And as you turn there, um, you know, we're going to be reading through the whole psalm, so it's a little bit long, but we're going to take it uh, kind of in chunks, basically, as far as the major themes of Psalm 22 go. So that's going to be the breakdown of how we're going to do it tonight. Obviously, this is a familiar psalm to us, um, but it is a glorious psalm. So hear the word of the Lord, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation of yourself. We thank you, Lord God, that in your word is glory, knowledge, wisdom, and righteousness. And Father, I do pray that you would reveal all of that to us this evening. Lord, I pray that you would use mightily a humble servant as myself, Lord God, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that your glory would be known. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, very familiar to us, Psalm 22, mostly because the very first line is quoted by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then as well, you have later on in the psalm, those very specific prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. They've pierced my hands and feet. They uh, cast lots to divide my clothing. And so we know this psalm. And we see in it the clear picture of the continuity of Scripture, a very clear picture of God's governing providence, that he is sovereign over all things. But when we get past just those very obvious first connections, and we'll come back around to them, but foundationally, this is a psalm of profound suffering. It is one of the greatest lamentations in all of Scripture, one of the psalms of deepest anguish, suffering, abandonment, derision, restlessness, helplessness, turmoil, torment. All of it is in this psalm, abiding deep anguish. And if we're going to understand the the fullness of the importance of this psalm, those of you who are in my covenant theology class know we've got to understand it, first of all, in its own context, and then we get to the fulfillment in Christ. And so if you guys actually wouldn't mind turning to 2 Samuel chapter 15. So we know that Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, But we're not told exactly when he wrote it. And there's a couple of possibilities. David, of course, was a man who was very uh, familiar with suffering. In many ways, David was a picture of the suffering servant, which will be fulfilled in Christ. Uh, and, And one of the places in Scripture where this could have been written, where David wrote a lot of his Psalms, is when he was in hiding in the wilderness when Saul was hunting him down. That's one possibility. Another possibility, and one that I believe seems to fit better with the theme of Psalm 22, is during David's time when he was in exile from Jerusalem after he had been removed from the throne by his son Absalom. So just some very brief background. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, uh, from that point on for the rest of his life, his life was marked by turmoil and upheaval and suffering and all sorts of struggling. And one of the most significant things that happened to him in his life is that his own son, Absalom, uh, began, he set himself against David and he sought to usurp the throne of his father. And for a brief time, Absalom succeeded in this. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Beginning in verse 13, we read this. A messenger came to David, 
saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest you overtake us, quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And then in verse 30 we read, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And so at this moment in David's life, we see him, uh, and when you have this in the background, it really starts to give color to the content of Psalm 22, because what we see in this situation is David, who is the rightful king of Israel, who was God's man on the throne, now being driven into exile. He who had once led Israel to glory, who had reigned over the people, who the people loved and adored, who had led Israel to its place of glory, was now in exile, cast out, gone up, weeping. And from his own household, his own son, his own flesh and blood, betrayed him, usurped him, He was responsible for bringing this disaster on him. And so it's no wonder why David, in this situation, leaving the throne, leaving the city of God, could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because humanly speaking, David had essentially at this point lost everything. There was nothing left for him. He had been removed from his position, removed from the presence of God. Humanly speaking, everything had been taken from him. He talks in this psalm about being mocked. This is another uh, another area of the psalm where we can glean wisdom from David's situation. In verse 7, he says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So you have this lament of David of being mocked and scorned and held in derision. And part of the reason for this is that Absalom, not only did he drive David from the throne, drive David out of the city, but uh, Absalom actually took David's concubines and he took them for himself in the sight of all Israel. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 22, we see that they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And so it wasn't just the humiliation of his son rising up against him and removing him from the throne, but of his son actually symbolically taking to himself that which belonged to his father, uh, publicly humiliating him. The people who had once loved David and sung his praises now scorned him, saw him as weak, as impotent. Even in, uh, in the passage that we read from 2 Samuel, the first thing that, uh, that David's servants say to him, they say, the hearts of the people have gone abs- after Absalom. They left David, they lost their affection for him, and they went after his son. Later on in the psalm, verses 16 through 18, you have this language 
that suggests David as being as good as dead when he writes that dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. That picture of the dog circling him. It's as if they're just waiting there as David is losing his strength and is about to drop dead and the dogs are about to move in and just pick off what's left from him after he dies. Kind of like the picture of vultures circling, waiting for him to die. Even dividing up his garments. We know that this is fulfilled later in Christ very literally, but in the context with David, the garments actually represented uh, the the inheritance of David. And so when they divide up the garments, it's as if they're sitting there casting lots, assuming that he's going to die and figuring out, okay, how are we going to divide up the inheritance after he dies? It's like that relative who, you know, when somebody's on the way out and they just can't even wait for that person to pass away and they're already claiming what they're going to take of the inheritance. That's the idea. His death is imminent here with David. People are planning for it. They're dividing the portions of the inheritance for themselves. And so we have this psalm written by David in the anguish of exile, removed from his rightful throne, betrayed by his own household, humiliated, scorned, and left as good as dead. And so he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so with that in the background, then, we can look at Christ and see the way that this kind of suffering is multiplied infinitely. And think about it for us. I mean, most of us, if you think about David's situation, most of us probably haven't experienced anything quite like that. But that's just a tiny fragment, a small picture of the profound anguish that Christ would suffer. Because as the Son of God, the creator of all, Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler of all creation. We're told that all things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. Colossians 1 tells us that, uh, I don't have the slide, Andy, so don't look for it. But Colossians 1, we're told that all things were created through him. Rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, all things created through him and for him, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the rightful ruler of all creation because by his authority, all things exist. Even in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, before the Incarnation, the kings of the earth are told to kiss the Son. That's in Psalm 2. And so at the Incarnation, that's the first stage of the humiliation of Christ. The eternal Son taking on flesh, and at that moment, he becomes a king in exile That Christ is removed from his proper place on the throne, takes on human flesh, and is now dwelling among his creatures. But whereas David was forced off the throne, in large part because of a consequence for his sin, God the Son willingly vacated his throne in order to deal with the sins of his people. And Jesus, during his time on earth, even before we get to the cross, 
He had to deal with and put up with uh, those, those rulers and those leaders of his people who were supposed to be ministering to, to his people, who were supposed to be shepherding his people, but they were false shepherds. Remember what we're told about Jesus, that he saw the people and he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or his rebuke against the religious leaders that they tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear and they put it on the people of God. The people who they were supposed to serve were being abused by the people who were uh, entrusted to guard and to shepherd God's people. And Christ had to put up with that during his time on earth, the abuse of his people by the religious leaders. Jesus was rejected by his own household. Remember what Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among the members of his household. He was rejected, and in fact, when he went to his hometown in Nazareth, they tried to kill him because he was of the claims that he was making. Even among the people, and think about this, the people of Israel were prepared for literally thousands of years, generation after generation, were prepared to receive Christ as king. They had on all the signs, all the scriptures, all the types, everything that was pointing forward. They were groomed and prepared to receive him as king. But what are we told? That he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected by the people who had been prepared and set apart to receive him as king. And not only was Jesus not acknowledged as the rightful king over his people, but he was mocked with a crown of thorns. He was spit on and he was put to death for claiming to be the king. His enemies throughout his whole life were looking for an opportunity to kill him. He was hunted down. David. His son may have reigned temporarily in Jerusalem over him. But think about this with Jesus, that the Lord Jesus, when he was standing trial, Pilate, a creature created by Jesus, used the authority that was given to him by God to put his own creator to death. Jesus says, you have no authority for me except that which was given to you from above. And Pilate used that authority and he put his creator to death. Jesus suffered betrayal at the hands of a disciple. He was denied by another one. He was abandoned by virtually all of them. And all of this besides the physical, visceral agony of the crucifixion literally pierced his hands and his feet. And above all of this, Jesus experienced deep physical, or I'm sorry, spiritual anguish. David experienced a type of curse. He was cast out of the land. He was cut off from the blessings of Israel. He was removed from the presence of God in Jerusalem. But Jesus experienced the real curse. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. Jesus was cast out as a sinner. He actually descended into the grave, into Sheol. David was in a loving covenant relationship with his creator when he was cast out of the land and suffered exile. But God the Son was in an eternal, intimate, face-to-face relationship with his Father as the only begotten Son. And at that time when Jesus was on the cross being cursed for our sins, it was almost as if he was disowned by his own Father because Jesus became a curse for us because he made him to be sin. 
He took the full wrath against our sin. He absorbed the fullness of the curse that we deserved. And in this context, Jesus quotes the Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the experiences of David that led him to cry out and claim God forsakenness, that was an imitation on David's part of the true man of sorrows, the true suffering servant, the truly God-forsaken Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are also called to imitate Jesus in this suffering. We'd be here all evening if we were to chronicle all of the New Testament exhortations or reminders of the way that we are called to suffer. But think about it. In Jesus' own life, what did he say to his people? Take up your cross and follow me. He said that if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He said that I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to set a father against his son and a mother against her daughter. He said that they were going to deliver you up to tribulation, that all the world will hate you for my name's sake. Jesus called his people to imitate him in his suffering. The apostles, they call us to the same thing. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. In James, we're told, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Philippians 1, that it has been granted to us to suffer for the sake of Christ. We're called to imitate him in his suffering. History testifies to the suffering of Christ's people. From Peter and John counting it worthy, or uh, rejoicing to be counted worthy, to suffer for the name of Christ, to the martyrdom of Stephen, to Paul being beaten, imprisoned, stoned, and shipwrecked, to the martyrs throughout church history, to those suffering for the gospel this very day, we are left a testimony of the blood of Christ's people who suffered the way that our Lord suffered. And even us, we are personally familiar with this suffering. Even if we may may not be suffering physical persecution, we still experience in this life deep and oftentimes very profound and always very real suffering because we do experience a type of exile in this life. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says to his father, I desire that my people should be with me where I am. As we read in the call to worship, we are citizens of heaven. While we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We are strangers and sojourners and aliens in this land. And even though we are here on this earth as ambassadors for Christ, that we've been sent on mission to conquer the world with the gospel by making disciples of all nations, proclaiming the lordship of Christ, even though we are here and we rejoice that we are here and we glorify God while we are here, we also know that this is not our home that we belong to the new creation, to the new Jerusalem, that we've been born again to newness of life, and so we belong in that new creation where the curse has passed away. And so we long for our heavenly dwelling. We long for the reconciliation of all things. We groan under the curse. 
And so we suffer and we experience sickness and pain and relational strife. And we suffer uh, betrayal and poverty and death and deep, profound, unspeakable loss. We experience our own sinful nature kicking against us. We experience the accusation of the devil. We experience the harassment and buffeting of Satan against us in this life. We definitely suffer and groan in the midst of a hostile and very dangerous world that mocks us and hates our king. And so we also can share in that same cry of David and of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can read Psalm 22 and we ourselves can relate to it. That can speak to experiences that we have in this life because we live in a cursed world and we are in exile in many ways right now. But we're not left there because throughout the psalm, if we go back to our text, We are taught and given an example of how we respond to the very real, very profound suffering that we experience. The first two-thirds of Psalm 22 are deep lamentation. But a couple of times throughout, you see David making these statements that give us a Give us a picture of how we are to respond when we're in the thick of suffering. Verses 3 through 5, David writes, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David looks back on God's faithfulness in the previous generations. He looks back to those who have come before him, to those who have suffered, and yet have remained steadfast and unwavering in their trust in the Lord and God's faithfulness to them, that they trusted in God and he delivered them. They trusted in God and they were not put to shame. He could look back at the faithfulness of the men who have faith who came before him and how God remained steadfast throughout. He could see God's goodness in sustaining his servants that came before him. And then in verses 9 and 10, David says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So he looks back on history, those who have come before But he also looks back in his own life and considers God's good and glorious providence that God has sustained him, that he has personally experienced the goodness and the grace of God, that God has supplied every one of his needs, that the whole of life from the very beginning when he trusted God at his mother's breast where God provided for him from his earliest days, He could see the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of God that he had experienced. And there was no reason to believe that God would cease to uh, sustain him by his providence and to keep him. We We see the same sorts of things in Jesus' life during his time on earth. The same way of dealing with suffering. He kept in mind 
while he was being tempted by Satan, by the devil, the faithfulness of his father. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says in response to the temptation uh, of the devil, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that proceeds from the word, uh, uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the father. That when Jesus was under fire, was under temptation, was under trial, he remained steadfast, trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of his father. Or you remember what Jesus says in John 11, outside the tomb of Lazarus. He says, Father, uh, wow, I don't think we even have that one. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. He gives thanks to his father for remaining faithful to him throughout his time of exile, throughout his time on the earth. John 17, 5. Jesus recalls the glorious intimacy of his relationship with the Father. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That as he goes through this life, Jesus is constantly in the midst of trial, suffering, anguish, and all the rest. He's remembering and calling to mind the goodness of his Father, the faithfulness of his Father. And as we experience suffering in this life, we indeed are called to that same way of thinking. We remember those who have suffered before us. We look back. That's why we're so encouraged by church history. And we're so encouraged by biographies of martyrs and the faithful men and women throughout the history of Christianity. That we look back and we consider all the trials and all that they endured and how God remained faithful to them always. Just like Paul says that I've been through all of these trials when he lists them off in 2 Corinthians. And yet when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God never wavered in his faithfulness. But we especially look to Christ and remember his suffering. Hebrews 12, 3, we read this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We are commanded to consider the suffering of Jesus Christ when we are going through trials, when we are going through the anguish and the suffering of this life, which is very real and profound. We are called to remember what Christ suffered that we may not grow weary We also remember all the good that God has done for us in our lives. Just as David looked back on the providence of God, just as Jesus thanked his father that he always hears him and remains faithful, so we remember the good that God has done to us. We consider his good providence. We consider his overwhelming grace. We consider all the, both the material, physical blessings and the great spiritual blessings that we have from the Lord. We are told to rejoice always, to not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. That we are to count it all joy when we experience trials because suffering produces steadfastness. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And this is not a coping mechanism. I think oftentimes we can start to think that when we when we talk about things like this, remembering God's providence, rejoice always, give thanks, remember those who have come before, it can come off 
almost as a cheap sort of, oh, well, look on the bright side, find a silver lining kind of coping mechanism. But that's not what this is. This is not denying the anguish of real suffering either. It's real, and it can be very profound. But what this is, is a faithful response to real suffering in which we recognize the sovereign power of God and his abundant mercy towards us and the fact that God promises us that even though we can't see it, he is continually and always doing good for us and bringing about our good. That's what this is. And as a response in faith to suffering, it's not a coping mechanism. It's not the world's therapy, but this is a faithful response to suffering. But that's not all. Because the true ultimate joy and hope of Psalm 22 comes in the end. The final about third of the psalm is looking forward to something else. Verses uh, 22 through 31. We're not going to read the whole thing. But in it, we see David's great confidence that God was going to bring restoration. If you look at verses 24 through 26, David says that he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise and the great congregation. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. David's true hope was that God was bringing about restoration. And yes, ultimately, David would be restored to the throne in Jerusalem. But more than that, David's joy in the midst of sorrow and anguish was in what God was doing beyond him, was looking forward to the ultimate work that God was busy doing. If you look at verses 27 through 31, in this amazing prophetic passage, David says that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Jesus looked forward or I'm sorry, David looked forward to the day where God would be acknowledged by all the nations, where God would establish his reign and rule over all, when it would not be just the people of Israel worshiping God, but all the ends of the earth would gather together to praise the God of Israel. And this was his hope in the midst of suffering. It went beyond just his life and his immediate circumstances. It went beyond just, God, I want you to restore me to my throne, to my place in this world world, but it was God, you are on the throne. You are going to be glorified. All the nations will gather together and worship you, that all those who are rebellious are going to be uh, brought into submission, that God is going to rule over all, that he is sovereign, and nothing and no one can knock him off the throne. 
That's the reality. And so in the midst of the sorrow and suffering, he is looking forward to glory because suffering is the way of glory. And that's why this psalm of deep anguish can end in rejoicing. That this psalm that talks about the exile and humiliation, all of that suffering is bringing about great, magnificent glory. Again, the same for Christ during his ministry on earth. At the beginning of his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, the time has come, glorify your son. Looking forward to the glory that he was to receive. Hebrews 12, 2 specifically tells us that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that because of the joy that was set before him, because he knew the glory that was to come, that is why he was able to endure suffering, endure the cross, despise the shame. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of suffering giving way to glory. We know the words of Philippians 2. That Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every other name that all will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was through emptying himself, it was through offering himself up on the cross that Jesus was brought into his glory and proclaimed as Lord and King over all. Just as Jesus said after his resurrection, was it not necessary that the Son of Man should suffer before entering into his glory? And again, this is our abiding hope. So yes, we look back at history of what God has done and how he has remained faithful. And we look back at our own lives and even to our present condition of God's grace and his providence and his goodness and his faithfulness. But more than anything, we look forward. We are a forward-looking people. We know that Christ is risen, that he is seated on the throne, that he is conquering every enemy, and that no amount of suffering or anguish will change this. And even more than that, we know that we are joined with him, that we are raised up with him, that we are going to reign with him. And this means also that we suffer with him. Philippians 3, 10 and 11 Paul writes that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, that we share, we participate, we imitate the sufferings of Christ in order that we may participate in his glory. And what this does is it gives us a hope that doesn't simply bear up under suffering, that's not simply a stiff upper lip or looking on the bright side or finding a silver linings or anything like that, but it is uh, a hope that is full of true joy and true sadness. This is how, by looking forward to what Christ will do, 
That's how we can obey the commands to rejoice always, to not be anxious, and to count it joy when we experience trials. The crown of thorns is what will give way to the crown of glory. The way of the cross is the way of resurrection, and the way of suffering is the way to glory. Suffering is the way to glory. Remember that. We'll close with Second uh, Corinthians 4.17. Paul says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And notice this, that our afflictions aren't designed to merely make us long for heaven, long for the day when every tear will be wiped away. It's not simply to remind us of the curse of this life. But our afflictions prepare us for the weight of glory. They make us fit for the weight of glory. They refine us and sanctify us and make us ready to receive the glory that is set before us. And so that's why we rejoice in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow. And so we are always of good courage. We can rejoice always. And while we truly do acknowledge and groan under the legitimate, genuine sufferings of this life, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Because we do have hope in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is reigning on the throne.